Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with today's 11-minute audio statement from Prigozhin, followed by a five-minute recorded TV address to the Russian people by President Putin, in which he tried to drive a wedge between Prigozhin and his rank-and-file Wagner mercenary army, promising them that they could go home or sign up for the military, while reneging on the Kremlin's early assurances Prigozhin would not be punished, promising to hold him to account for a mutiny that was aiding and abetting what Putin calls the neo-Nazis in Kiev and the West. Joining us is Andrew Weiss, Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Canadian Endowment of International Peace, where he oversees research on Russia and Eurasia. He previously served as Director for Russian, Ukrainian and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council and as a member of the State Department's policy planning staff. His latest book is Accidental Tsar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. Then we'll examine how the culture of Washington changed in the Trump years with the influx of grifters, con men, racists, creeps, and bottom feeders who saw the moment as an opportunity to bet big on their country or maybe just on themselves. Joining us for a journey into post-Trump America's mad mix of oddballs, opportunists, and true believers is Ben Terrace, a writer for the Washington Post style section with a focus on national politics. He is the author of the new book, Just Out, The Big Break, The Gamblers, Party Animals and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Andrew Weiss, who's the Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he oversees research on Russia and Eurasia. He previously served as, uh, as Director for Russian, Ukrainian and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council and as a member of the State Department's policy planning staff. And his latest book is Accidental Tsar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andrew Weiss. Thanks so much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Andrew. And today, Prigozhin released an 11-minute uh, audio, and then later, after 10 p.m. Uh, local time in Moscow, there was a five-minute recording played of an angry President Putin. Essentially, I thought, and I'm interested in what you thought, he seems to be trying to divide the Wagner's to do, drive a wedge between the rank and file and Prigozhin. You know, he talked about mutiny and part of 
of Prigozhin, but said that they, essentially that the rank and file had been misled and said, you know, you can go, you can go home, or you can sign up for the military. So, what did you make of it? Well, let's set a couple of pieces of information out there so that we have a, a common baseline. First and foremost, Mr. Prigozhin and his Wagner outfit are an appendage of Russia's national security state and apparatus, and they've been utilized to be doing dirty work and off the books operations for the better part of the last 10 years. Second point, there is always a lot of animosity and competition among the competing people who run that sprawling national security and intelligence apparatus. They basically hate each other's guts. They're feeding at similar troughs. They're dependent on state budget. But Prigozhin was different in the sense that he doesn't have a big bureaucracy and a big budget. Um, but he's, over the course of the war in Ukraine, became more important because Russia's conventional military has been shredded and they needed new tools that would allow them to conduct assaults on Ukrainian positions and it trit the Ukrainian side. And they didn't want these human wave attacks to sweep up average Russians. They wanted to empty the jails and use drug dealers, um, murderers and rapists to conduct this horrible wave of assaults. And Prigozhin's status within the system grew because that was an important function as the Russian government tried to push deeper into Ukraine. Last point, at no point in this whole crazy spectacle of the last 72 hours has Yevgeny Prigozhin sought the overthrow of the Putin regime. He's challenged Putin's authority, but he is constantly saying, I'm the right guy to do this war, Mr. Putin. It's your military and intelligence people who've let you down. Please empower me to keep the fight going. Well, he actually says, we went as a demonstration of protest not to overthrow the government of the country. Uh, our march showed many things we discussed earlier, the serious problems with security in the country. It's almost as if he was saying we, our march of justice to Moscow was my attempt to get Putin's ear to tell him he's being misled by his military leaders. Is that essentially what he was saying? Yeah, Prigozhin's been on that message now for ages. Since the war started, he's been lampooning and attacking the top brass of the Russian military and saying they've screwed this thing up royally, which happens also to be true. But Prigozhin is a troll. He's someone who relishes publicity, who acts as ghoulish as possible to create as much attention for himself. And that's his main tool for getting Putin's attention, because he doesn't have a formal seat at the table. The challenge now is having created this kind of a mess and actually had Russian units and Wagner shooting at each other over the weekend, Mr. Prigozhin has really irritated the boss and he's forced the boss to come in and make a decision. The problem for Putin is he doesn't have tens of thousands of fighters that he can use overnight to replace the Wagner forces. And so when Putin spoke to the nation a little while ago, he insisted that these are all good Russian patriots and they can continue to fight in Ukraine and they'll be treated fairly. So Putin's in a bit of a box here of his own devising. He doesn't want another draft. He doesn't want to have to mobilize average people to go fight this war. He wants to keep the Russian people on the sidelines. But he also knows that Mr. Prigozhin is dangerous in terms of his recklessness and his propensity to 
to generate attention and show the Russian government to look like it doesn't have its act together. And of course, it wasn't entirely bloodless, this uh, march on Moscow. The Wagner's apparently shot down a number of helicopters and a, an airborne command post, killing a, a lot of uh, Russian airmen. And uh, the Russians also blew up bridges, apparently, uh, key bridges just uh, outside of Moscow in anticipation of stopping the convoy. But is there something else here in the sense that you have a generation of Russians who don't know anybody but Putin? He completely controls the narrative he has for the last 23 years. It seems that the only crack in the narrative has been from the military bloggers and Prigozhin, who've had some purchase in the media space. And I'm wondering how attractive that's been, because you know, throughout the Soviet Union, people after a while didn't believe anything the government said. So if there's an alternative to the government, don't the people flock to it? I don't really buy that. There's a lot of debate on this issue, to be fair. And people are saying that the fact that Prigozhin has lampooned the original rationale for the war, said NATO was not poised to attack us using Ukraine, that that was all conjured up out of whole cloth. If we were talking about the United States and the UK during the Iraq war, where there was uh, inflation of the threat by Presidents Bush and then Prime Minister Tony Blair, um, it would be a different story because those leaders obviously run for re-election and they were the rulers of democracies. Russia is not a democracy. And anybody who has been paying any attention knows that Vladimir Putin's rationale for this war was an entire... A boatload of lies and self-serving nonsense. The problem is nobody's got the guts or the political backing to challenge him. And so average Russians have chosen to look away at the enormous criminality and atrocities that have been committed by Russians in this war on Ukraine. And the Russian elite has stood, stood silently. There hasn't been a single high-profile defection. There's no prominent member of the Russian state who says, I can't associate myself with this criminal war. I'm, you know, on Russia, I'm out of here. So I, I think those actions to me speak a lot louder than any of the, the trash talking from Mr. Prigozhin. So is that to say, Andrew, that within the entire power structure, there's only Putin, there's no voices? I mean, collectively, they must privately realize what a catastrophe this war has been. Yeah, but they're complicit. They're, you know, they've been part of this war. So if you're you know, working at the Russian Central Bank, you're helping keep the financial system afloat. If you're working in uh, the Russian defense industry, you're processing orders to build more stuff to go to the front. Um, it's, a, it's a situation where upwards now of 25% of the Russian state budget is classified. So it's presumably part of defense expenditures or expenditures on the security state. Um, Russia is moving towards a, a period where Fighting this war is the dominant force in political life and in the economy. Um, and Putin doesn't face serious counterbalances or counterweights within the system. He has made a dramatic miscalculation here, but there are very few countervailing forces that can f make him stop throwing good money after bad. So the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, he said that Russia's intelligence services were investigating whether Western spy agencies played a role in the aborted mutiny. And in the, Putin's brief five-minute speech on Russian TV a little after 10 p.m. local time, 
tonight, Putin said that the neo-Nazis in Kiev and in the West were essentially being given aid and comfort. I mean, I, I guess in a way that's the worst thing you could say about Prigozhin, right? That he's giving aid and company, aid and comfort to the so-called neo-Nazis. I don't know. You know. There's been a lot of commentary about has anybody brought Russia as low as Vladimir Putin? Um, so you know, if you if your if your test is um, who's doing Russia the biggest disservice, um, it's clearly Mr. Putin. Um, and the Russian government now is scrambling to try to make excuses excuses for how they've run this war in such a shabby fashion. They're trying to blame other people for the mishaps that have confronted Russia's invasion since the very early days. The long and short of it is that this is a, a foolhardy criminal war. The people of Ukraine have responded bravely to try to repel the Russian invasion. And this has, you know, sucked Russia into a long-term conflict that it will struggle to ever extricate itself from. We've seen in this weekend's actions in Rostov and more recently, a couple of weeks ago, in neighboring southern Russian regions adjacent to Ukraine, that the border is permeable and that Russia will now face pretty much on an indefinite basis the risk of further Ukrainian attacks on its territory um, from units bent on revenge uh, for all the atrocities and, and crimes that Russians have committed on Ukraine's territory since the beginning of the war in 2014. But it looks as though, at least it's hard to f know for sure, but I don't know that that many of Prigozhin's fighters, about 25,000, I think, and I can't imagine that he's not somehow with them. Aren't they his insurance policy? But aren't they, they're not signing up, I don't think, and even, even suggesting that you're helping out the neo-Nazis in Kiev and in the West, that maybe it's not having any traction. So do you think that not only this war between Ukraine and, and Russia is going to be a painful, long standoff, you already have kind of World War One like 600-mile-long lines. What's your sense of whether the standoff with Prigozhin will continue as well? Or that can Putin succeed in peeling off the rank and file from the leadership that he's condemned as mutineers? Hard to say at this point. We we have I've seen different numbers about how many people were with uh, Prigozhin in Rostov over the weekend. I don't think it was 25,000. I think it was probably about a tenth of that, but we don't have hard numbers. Um, the people who've been fighting with him are uh, war enthusiasts, I don't know, or people who were desperately trying to get out of jail, literally get out of jail, and this was their ticket to freedom, to get a pardon for whatever crimes they'd committed that had landed them in the Russian uh, criminal justice system in the first place. Um, I don't think of these people as cult followers of Mr. Prigozhin. I don't think of them as unified by some sort of vision um, or political agenda. I think it's a lot murkier than that about who fought in these units, what motivated them, what's going to motivate them going forward. But, you know, Putin, I think, is right in, as far as, you know, trying to avoid more bloodletting to avoid treating them like you know, you all need to end up in jail. I think, you know, if, if Putin's halfway sensible, he's not going to look to stir up more trouble for himself. I think he's going to look to buy these people off much of, you know, that that's been his, you know, stock and trade tool for 20 plus years is, you know, everybody's got a price 
and um, you know he's loaded with with the funding to to meet that price. So just to broaden it out, though, Andrew Weiss, do you think that there is anything to the notion that when a state loses monopoly on violence, you're you're heading into a kind of warlord situation, like well, Sudan, obviously is an example, but I'm hardly suggesting that that's what's happening in Russia. But is that in any way significant, that this situation that we've seen in the last 72 hours in the context of the state losing its monopoly on violence? Um, the Russian state is in a state of deterioration and degradation, and it has outsourced important functions like its monopoly on violence to thugs like Prigozhin because it needed to. Um, it will be very hard to put that toothpaste back in the tube. Um, at the same time, there is one thing that Vladimir Putin is good at, which is running a lot of security agencies and knocking heads. And I would think that's likely to be the next focus for him, is to push for more discipline, to try to keep closer tabs on uh, the security services and the military than he has up to now. They've been obsessed for the better part of the last 20 years with liberals and other, you know, uh, people inside this, the society that they thought weren't truly loyal to Russia. Now he realizes he's got to keep closer tabs on people who are engaged in national security matters. It's, you know, it's it's going to make for more demands. It's going to make for more repression. Um, I don't think Russia has descended into warlordism in the sense that different parts of the country are not uh, now being controlled by armed units or something. We really haven't reached that point with the exception of one or two parts of the country like Chechnya, which has just always been different. So in terms of then this anomaly in geopolitics, we've never had the, the combination of national security and organized crime, nuclear weapons and the mafia. Is, is there any sense that this is a wake-up call in that regard? You know, the idea that the Putin is sending Prigozhin to Belarus, where he just handed off some nuclear weapons, not that he's given Lukashenko control of them. But is that a concern? I mean, it has to be a concern, surely, for the National Security Council and President Biden. Um, I think it's understandable that U.S. officials, as they got wind of this plot, uh, apparently a few days before it became public knowledge, um, we're worried about what would it mean to deal with a Russia where there is civil strife and violence potentially erupting between different branches of the security apparatus. Um, and given that Russia has a huge nuclear arsenal, that's something you would always be worried about. People were worried about it in 1991 when the Soviet Union fell apart. So um, here we are more than 30 years later worrying about it again. Um, it's a rickety country with pretty poor quality governance and poor quality institutions. So it's understandable that people are worried about it. Do I think that it's likely to get worse and we'll see more incidents like what we saw over the weekend? Probably not. I think there is something somewhat unique in the ad hocery and improvisation over the past decade that led to the rise of Prigozhin. This wasn't something that was super well thought out. It was more the accumulation of bad decisions and a sense that this was the least bad option for how to pursue some narrow policy objective. Most recently, how to uh, decapitate the Zelensky government and take over Ukraine. So did the GRU then lose control? 
Prigozhin. I mean, he initially he was folded into the GRU, and the co-founder of Wagner was a GRU colonel, was he not? Who was obsessed with the Nazis, has all kinds of Nazi tattoos on his body, and he was a he was a follower of Richard Wagner, Hitler's favorite composer. Thus, the name Wagner. Um. The origins of the Wagner story are somewhat murky. As you say, it it was, I believe, a creature of the Russian security services. And ultimately, the security services recruited Mr. Prigozhin to lead it. And he did a good job uh, on some level of making it an effective force in places like Syria after the Russian intervention in 2015. But at times, Prigozhin, even there, created huge sources of tension with the top brass. There was a famous series of fights between him and the Russian military in Syria. And then he also tangled with U.S. military units in Syria. And that led to the biggest uh, losses of the Russian military in any direct fighting with the United States. More than 200 Russians were killed in February of 2018 when Wagner-tied forces attacked a U.S. special forces outpost in Deir ez-Zor, Syria. So this is a person who is a uh, risk, who is foolhardy, um, who's unprofessional, um, and who's been, uh, despite all that, not reined in. I think the moment has arrived where he'll probably be reined in. But the fighters that he has brought to the battlefield in Ukraine remain valuable for Russia's war aims. So just in the last uh, couple of minutes then, uh, Andrew, given that Putin's speech tonight five-minute speech to the Russian people, pre-taped, where he praised the unity of Russian society. In the broadest sense, is it still unified? I mean, it's a one-man show. Uh, there are obviously some cracks, as we've mentioned in the, in the narrative. And, you know, the, the mill bloggers and, and Pergozin have gotten a little bit of traction. Is he going to close the door on that? Is he going to close the door on criticism? And he's, it doesn't seem like he's going to scapegoat Shoigu or Gerasimov, the heads of the military. Russian society, by at least the the public polling that we've done, the Carnegie Endowment has done in conjunction with Russian partners, looks like it's about 80% in support of the war. But that support is based on a degree of inertia, passivity, and a desire to just look away from the horrors of what's been unleashed. So it's not like a, a, a body politic that's looking to do something and donate its kids or military or other uh, treasure to uh, support Putin's war aims. But they don't get a vote. Russia is a very top-down society where the circles around Putin and Putin himself make the big decisions. And there's no indication that Putin has changed his mind, that he can grind the Ukrainians down and outlast its Western partners, including the United States. He's betting that someone like Donald Trump will take over in January of 2025, and he'll then take things from there. So, you know, he's he's really made a decision here that he can get through whatever horrors are, are, are on his uh, plate between now and uh, next November, and then when the new administration takes power in January of 2025 in the U.S., but before then, I imagine he is employing active measures, as he did in 2016, to influence the House in particular to cut off uh, aid to Ukraine. Isn't that his best play? I don't know if the best play is to just let us continue to be a polarized and dysfunctional 
society. Um, you don't need to spend money to watch that process. You just have, you know, already um, deep, deep divisions inside U.S. Uh, politics and inside American society that that are not the product of Russian involvement. But it's striking. You know, we have a presidential candidate, a leading one, uh, Donald Trump, who continues to embrace Russia's view of of this war, um, despite all evidence to the contrary. Um, it's a very perverse situation where you have members of Congress who would, you know, gladly embrace what what Vladimir Putin's doing in Ukraine and leave our Ukrainian partners in the lurch. I think that's that's something that really has to be avoided by all, you know, by all possible means. Well, Andrew Weiss, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. Great talking to you. Likewise, and again, I've been speaking with Andrew Weiss, who's the Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Canadian Endowment for International Peace, where he oversees research on Russia and Eurasia. He previously served as Director for Russian, Ukrainian and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council and as a member of the State Department's policy planning staff. And his latest book is Accidental Tsar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining how the culture of Washington changed in the Trump years with the influx of grifters, con men, racist creeps and bottom feeders who saw the moment as an opportunity to bet big on their country or maybe just on themselves. They will never return, never return our love. One soldier, soldier, what you gonna do when you want Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ben Terrace, who is a writer at the Washington Post style section with a focus on national politics. He's the author of the new book just out, The Big Break, The Gamblers, Party Animals, and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ben Terrace. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Ben. And in terms of America losing its mind, we have seen that uh, countries can go mad. Look at uh, Brexit and what it's done to the Brits or what they've done to themselves in this extraordinary self-inflicted wound where they can't get out from under it. So do you think that not only did we have a mad president from 2016 to 2020, but do you think the country is also in the grip of madness? Yeah, I mean, look, countries don't just elect presidents, um, you know, without uh, reflecting themselves to some degree. Right. And so Donald Trump might not have won the popular vote, uh, but he won millions and millions of voters and uh, millions and millions of people were very happy with the job he did. And so I think that you can't really look at the chaos of the presidency and not see uh, some chaos that is also, you know, reflecting itself in, in, in the populace. Well, I was very amused to see an interview on Fox the other day with one of their hosts that actually tries to be a journalist, and he interviewed Trump and and brought up the fact that in 2016, Trump said he would only pick the best people. And then <laughs> Brett Baer went through the whole list of everybody that he picked from the vice president down as, as his top officials in his government, all of whom he's trashed. And then he said, but no, there's there's 10 times more good people 
So have you been profiling some of the good people that are uh, 10 times more than uh, top people in his cabinet? I mean, that interview was amazing. It was uh, like, I remember he was like listing everybody from General Kelly, General Mattis, uh, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, like all these people that have totally turned on Trump and that Trump has totally turned on. Yeah. And him trying to claim, oh, no, those are just a few you know, bad apples or whatever. But I've really surrounded myself with the best people. Um, certainly, uh, Washington is not just filled with the best people these days, um, not just in terms of whether they're uh, loyal to Trump or not. But certainly a lot of people came into Washington who maybe had no business being there in, in past years, who maybe rose to very high uh, ranking jobs without having the necessary experience. And so I feel like Washington is still like kind of figuring out uh, what to do in this sort of post-Trump Washington, even though he may return, it may just be pre-Trump again. This post-Trump Washington where the doors have been flung open to all sorts of new people, all sorts of new tactics, uh, all sorts of, of different ways to kind of play the game, as they say in Washington. And nobody really knows what this game is, and this game isn't really fun. And so I think people are, are trying to figure out you know, how to make it work right now. So it's pretty clear that Trump filled up the swamp in the Trump era with grifters, conmen, racist creeps, bottom feeders, etc. And there are prominent characters like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Rudy Giuliani, the My Pillow guy, Sidney Powell. But you didn't profile them. You profiled a different group of people, more interesting and more eclectic and covering a, a more of an ideological spectrum. Why did you choose these people and not the prominent ones that are clearly been in the limelight? Well, one of the reasons is because the prominent ones have already been in the limelight. I mean, I feel like if I'm going to spend two years trying to tell a story of Washington, I want it to be a new story. I want people to read this book and be introduced to new characters that they haven't already spent their time, you know, deciding how they feel about. Um, I think Washington is made up of lots and lots and lots of people, most of whom don't get attention the way that Marjorie Taylor Greene or Rudy Giuliani or others get. I profile a lot of them for my day job at the Washington Post, but this is a book about people, about drama, about uh, the you know internal lives uh, of uh, folks who are trying to make it work in Washington or make Washington work for them. And so I, I felt like I could paint a different and also kind of in some ways more accurate picture of Washington by focusing on kind of subterranean creatures, people who uh, may stick around long after Trump, may have been around long before Trump, you know, chameleons of, of, of sorts who are always changing their shape and their and their color. Uh, if I could paint this picture of all these people, I think people will read this book, enjoy it, laugh, also realize how dark it is, and at the end of the experience kind of think, oh, I, I think I know how Washington works or doesn't work these days. So let's go through the characters. You've got the pollster and think tanker, Sean McElwee, famous for wanting to abolish ICE. You've got Ian Walters, who's with the influential and increasingly unhinged Conservative Political Action Conference. You've got the heiress, Leah Hunt Hendricks, the granddaughter of the oil tycoon, H.L. Hunt. Uh, she wants to spend millions of dollars pushing the Democratic Party to the left, <laughs> which is interesting. And... Uh, then you've got Robert Strick, who's, I guess, trying to out-Manafort uh, Manafort. 
uh, <laughs> he's sucking up to despicable foreign leaders that he represents. And then you've got Jamarcus Purley, a former staffer for Dianne Feinstein, who is obviously deeply disillusioned. He also thinks his boss might be senile. Since um, I'm out here in California and she's our senator, or one of our senators, that's an amazing story, is it not, that she's still in office there and apparently Nancy Pelosi is the one that wants to keep her in office uh, and Nancy Pelosi's eldest daughter is her full-time caretaker and you've got all these other characters out here running for her seat or wanting to run for her seat but they don't want the governor to appoint an interim senator which he has the right to do since he's promised to appoint a black woman and there happens to be one black woman lining up to run in to replace Feinstein, and that would give her an, an advantage. So how does that particular character play into the into the broader drama that we're experiencing out here in California? Well, so Jamarcus is a very interesting character. He's a, a young black guy from uh, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, went to uh, Harvard, Stanford, Yale, br- brilliant guy. Harvard, Stanford, Oxford, sorry, not Yale. Harvard, Stanford, and Oxford. Uh, brilliant guy. And he worked for Dianne Feinstein for five years before, you know, kind of going through a, a, a big break of his own, not to, you know, name check the title of the book, but during COVID, uh, he lost his father. He started to feel like, um, Senator Feinstein was not completely mentally there, which is a story obviously we are all talking about now as a country. And he also, you know, had some problems kind of at work, uh, you know, writing, uh, letters to constituents without getting approval from managers. Ultimately he gets fired. Uh, and, uh, in an act of protest, he takes a bunch of psilocybin mushrooms, breaks into Feinstein's office using his old ID, sits at her desk, smokes a joint at her desk and films a video of himself dancing to his mom's favorite song in the video, hoping that a lot of people will come to him afterwards for an interview and ask him like, what's, what's this about? What's going on? He was really hoping he could draw attention to what was going on in her office, you know, especially with her as a, as a Senator and. He believed uh, the chief of staff acting as a shadow senator. Ultimately, no one really paid too much attention to Jamarcus. Um, and, and that's part of the story, too. This, this is a story about what it's like to work on the Hill, what it's like to have these tough jobs, what it's like to not have a voice when you're around some of the most powerful people in the world, when you want your voice to be heard about them specifically. Uh, and so I kind of use him as a character to get into this subaltern world on the Hill and I, I think that he is an interesting character in of himself. Obviously, the story I just relayed here is interesting. A guy breaking into an office on drugs, filming a video is interesting. But it also felt important because, you know, there's a gerontocracy in, on Capitol Hill. There's old, the, people, the country is being run by older and older people, while younger and younger people are taking the jobs that actually are kind of the engine of the place. And so I think Jamarcus is a great example of you know, in, in California, this this divide between uh, old and young and, um, you know, who's being represented, who's being looked after by, by this, by, by, by senators that have been around for a long time. Um, and so I, stories like that, I don't think get told enough in Washington. And that's why I wanted to make sure to include, include it in the book. So let's talk about Robert Strict, who I mentioned uh, seems to be trying to out Manafort, Manafort, and of course Manafort represented uh, Mobuto and Yanukovych, who was 
booted out of Ukraine, and which was the prelude to the current war that's going on. And he was clearly in the pocket of the Russians as well. What makes this Robert Strick guy tick? So, you know, the important part of this book, is I, as I tried to convey before, is that I wanted to make sure that all of my characters were both interesting, that you'd want to read about them, but also, um, you know, represented a bigger story, right? And, and Strick, his is the story of um, who gets to play in Trump's Washington and what happens once Trump is gone. He was this longtime lobbyist who never really could make it work. He never made a lot of money and ended up getting bounced out of Washington and started his, you know, went to work at a, at a uh, a wine vineyard in Oregon. Uh, but because of some connections to the Trump campaign uh, early on, he comes back to Washington and the world is just opened up to him. He is out there celebrating four days after Trump is elected. A dog sniffs his crotch out on a patio at the Four Seasons Hotel late at night while he's you know drinking whiskey and smoking cigars. And the owner of the dog, it turns out, is um, the... Uh, she works for the um, the New Zealand embassy, and she explains, oh, I'm having a hard time getting uh, my country to connect with Donald Trump. In this new Washington that is just starting to form, everybody was prepared for Hillary Clinton to be president. They had all the connections lined up for that. Nobody knew what to do when Trump became president. But Strick is out there, this you know cowboy hat wearing you know vineyard man, and he says, uh, yeah, I can do that for you. I can help out. And she's like, who the heck are you? He doesn't really have a good explanation for it. But he does manage to connect uh, the United States and New Zealand. And all of a sudden, he's off to the races. He can just, you know, take advantage of this chaos that is that is the Trump administration and become richer than maybe almost any, you know, made more money than almost any other lobbyist in, in the whole era. And what makes him tick is, is that. It's taking advantage of chaos. It's, um, you know, working with some unseemly countries as the war in Ukraine was breaking out. He flies himself out to Belarus to try to get a contract with the Belarusian dictator. I mean, he's just there to take advantage. I mean, he, he'll say that he's there to promote democracy and to talk about capitalism, and that's probably true to a degree. Uh, but he's certainly taking advantage of this kind of post-Trump chaos that has opened up. Well, Ben, uh, I have a friend who's a former CIA officer, and he refers to Washington as Nigeria on the Potomac. How much do you think it uh, has changed uh, in the last few years from what my friend observed a number of years ago? Well, I can't speak to the Nigeria on the Potomac. It's a good line, but I don't know how, how, how much it, it, it resembles Nigeria or not. But what I can say is as a place, it has changed. Um, people are figure like the place is broken right now and it's been broken for a while. But right now, people don't know exactly how to put it back together. Um, Donald Trump has kind of shaken everybody's confidence, uh, broken relationships, uh, broken politics, um, broken, uh, you know, confidences, really. And so people in, in Washington, it's this void where everyone is trying to figure out how to put things back together, whether that's building a coalition, uh, electing a president, uh, making a living for themselves. It's, it's really kind of an unstable time. But ever since Citizens United, uh, Ben, it seems that, I mean, before then, our legislators were telemarketers spending their days dialing for dollars. But now it's really allowed massive amounts of money. You know, you've got Leonard Leo, who's handpicked the conservative or ultra-conservative majority on the Supreme Court. Just <laughs> one of the people, one of his donors gave him $1.6 for God's sake. 
and we can see all this plutocratic money sloshing around, it does seem that the Republicans and Trump, of course, who's raising money out of every possible grievance, particularly now that he's been indicted, uh, money's pouring into him. So let's talk about the heiress to the oil tycoon H.L. Hunt's fortune, Leah Hunt Hendricks. She's trying to level the playing field. Is that what's going on? Yeah, you know, it's one of these kind of awkward things, right, where she's very progressive and she does not like money in politics, but her value right now to the Democratic cause, to the progressive cause especially, is that she can bring big money into politics. Um, you know, grassroots campaigns are one thing, you know, Bernie Sanders able to raise $27 or whatever the, the exact number was, uh, you know, per donation as, as, as an average. Um there aren't a lot of uh, millionaires or heiresses to, uh, you know, multi-million dollar fortunes uh, that are fighting the progressive fight. Um, the kind of people who know lots of other rich people who might be willing to donate big amounts of money. So Leah's job essentially um, during the Trump era and now has been to like, I don't know, do some kind of collective action among the rich people that she knows. She is able to build out a coalition of rich progressives to help move lots of money into democratic and progressive causes. Uh, I think she would say, I'd rather not have to do this, but uh, you know, if, if no one does it, then we're just ceding the ground to Republicans is what she might say. Well, she's probably not wrong, right? Yeah. This Isn't is what there, Obama uh, used to talk about as like unilateral disarmament, right? Which is like, um, if we're just going to give up the, the, the weapons that, that the other side is using, we're just going to get, you know, nukes to oblivion. Right. So there's no way then to get money out of politics. Everybody's accepted that. As Jess Unruh once said out here in California, money is the mother's milk of politics. Yeah, I don't, I mean, look, people in Washington love to make predictions and everybody's always wrong about things. So I try not to predict whether something is possible or not because a lot of impossible seeming things seem to be happening all the time. Um, so I don't know. I mean, is it possible that money gets out of politics? Sure, it's possible. Uh, it's certainly not what's happening right now. Right now, instead of looking for ways to get money out of politics, it seems sort of like places are raising more money than ever. Even places that are trying to end Citizens United have have fundraising efforts that bring in tons and tons of money. So it, it's it, it's a hard it's hard to see how the door closes on it, at least in the in the near future. Sure. And, we, you know, given that Leonard Leo's got these ultra conservatives on the Supreme Court and throughout the federal judiciary, now we're learning, of course, that a couple of the Supreme Court justices, Clarence Thomas, we know about his relationship with a billionaire. And now we're just learning from Politico that Sam Alito's been faded and funded by another billionaire singer. This was uh, with him on the Alaska boat making martinis with, with glacial ice. Is that right? <laughs> yes, glacial ice makes all the difference, I want you to know. I'm sure it's, it's the freshest possible ice you could have in a martini, and I'm sure they definitely did not notice. So what about that hotel, though, that Trump has? Wasn't that kind of ground zero, the sort of grifter ground zero? Is that still operating? It's no longer the Trump Hotel, so right. um, it, it's operating as I don't know, maybe it's a Waldorf Astoria now. Um, uh -huh. But yeah, that was that was certainly like the other White House, but the White House where you could uh, m slightly more legally or without 
getting busted for it, maybe, uh, yeah, kind of perform grifts and favors and uh, see people and be seen. It was a real, yeah, it was a real kind of um, hot spot of the Trump years. So just back to, I want to go through all your characters here. How about Ian Walters and his influential and increasingly unhinged conservative political action conference? So Ian is an interesting character in this book. He is the right-hand man to uh, Matt Schlapp, who uh, was the chairman, is the chairman of the American Conservative Union and runs CPAC, the big conference that, you know, has become kind of a, you know, multi-times-a-year rally for Donald Trump. Uh, And Ian and Matt were so close that uh, at one point, Ian wanted Matt to be the godfather to one of his children. Um, But because of differences in politics and uh, pettiness at work and personal squabbles. The two of them had this kind of breakup, uh, the kind of, you know, tumultuous relationship stuff that has happened a lot in Washington between people during the Trump years. Um, they had this big breakup and I kind of explore in the book, uh, why is this just because Ian has become fed up with Trump and the MAGA movement and the Matt Gates and the Marjorie Taylor Greens that have become the mainstays of CPAC? Or is it because he and Matt uh, just had a kind of petty falling out? And the answer, I mean, not to give too much away from the book, but the answer is sort of both, right? I mean, that's the important thing about politics is politics is people. Uh, People don't just have big revelations about their politics, you know, based on nothing. Oftentimes, usually it's because of things that are going on in their lives, whether it's relationships with people at work or friends or family a lot of where people end up in, in the political world is based on uh, sometimes kind of small, silly, ridiculous things. And so I kind of explore that in, in the you know unraveling of their relationship. And didn't an aide of Matt Slaps accuse him of a male aide of sexual uh, harassment? Is That's that, right. Tell me about That's that. That's in the book. That's in the book, too. Um Matt was uh, working, uh, came down to the to Georgia to speak on behalf of the Herschel Walker campaign. Uh, and while down there, he's alleged to have groped a male staffer. Um, the two of them are, you know, kind of battling this out legally right now. Um, so, you know, there has not been a conclusion on that matter, but uh, it certainly was a, a, a wounding episode for, for Matt, who whose reputation has, has been certainly tarnished by, yeah, by allegations of, of actually assaulting a man. Well, that doesn't play with the GOP's jihad against gays and lesbians, right? And particularly Matt Schlapp obviously has a close relationship with Viktor Orban in Hungary. They keep having CPACs over there, and Orban is certainly guilty of gay bashing. Yeah, this is, uh, if proven true and if people decide to believe it, which is a big thing in, in Washington these days, is people feel like they can decide what to believe and what not to believe, at least publicly, I certainly would not uh, be a good thing for Matt Schlapp. But people often overlook things if they decide that they can spin it as a media hit job or a Democratic hit job or a disgruntled, uh, you know, low-level staffer hit job. Um you know, if Donald Trump remains powerful and Donald Trump decides that he likes Matt Schlapp and his loyalty, then maybe Matt Schlapp can, uh, you know, can ride this out. And if if not, uh, who knows? Maybe he, his, his power fades. So let's talk then about uh, Sean McElwee, 
the think tanker and pollster who is famous for wanting to abolish ice. Yeah, he um very interesting guy. I decided to spend time with him because he, like many people in Washington, had this very rapid evolution ideologically from abolish ice, AOC supporter, Bernie Sanders hat wearing, Karl Marx shirt wearing, uh, you know, uh, dirtbag left happy hour hosting pollster. Uh, moves to Washington and becomes kind of a centrist of sorts. Um, starts saying, you know, we got to stop saying defund the police. He becomes a, an advocate of something, you know, close to popularism, this idea that Democrats should just do the most popular thing, not try to push the envelope on, um, you know, progressivism. And what was interesting to me about him is in spending time with him, uh, I would go to a lot of his poker nights. Um, I found that this pollster would bet bigger uh on politics at poker nights than he did on cards. He was betting on, on um, elections and on legislation passing and on at what date a Senator who had a health scare would return to the Senate floor. He would bet on anything involving politics online and with his friends and watching him kind of gamify his profession. Uh, and, you know, he also had these connections to Sam Bankman fried that were interesting, but watching him become this kind of advocate of, turning politics into a game and watching that unravel around him and, and lead kind of to his downfall ended up being one of the most dramatic parts of, of the book, I think. Let's take a brief station break and we're back continuing the conversation with Ben Terrace, the author of The Big Break, The Gamblers, Party Animals and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And we're continuing the conversation with Ben Terrace, who is a writer at the Washington Post style section with a focus on national politics. He's the author of the new book just out, The Big Break, The Gamblers, Party Animals, and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind. So one of the... uh, Extraordinary things. I just I mentioned the Fox interview, which you also saw Ben with Trump, but there was also a clip the other day that I saw of a group of Republican voters, primary voters in Iowa. They were sitting around a table, and they were all asked to raise your hands if you would vote for Donald Trump if he ends up in jail, or if, if would you vote for him if he's running the presidency from jail, running for the presidency from jail, and every one of them put their hand up. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. So just back to our, the beginning of our conversation about the madness of a former president and how the country is being gripped by a, a kind of uh, madness, which plays on the, the title of your book, The Big Break, Gamblers, Party Animals, and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind. A week ago, Bill Barr was on Face the Nation, and he made the most amazing description of Trump, which I had heard from interviews I'd done earlier with psychiatrists who'd written a book about the dangerous case of Donald Trump, 37 
psychiatrist way in, okay, if that's the title, an author of another book, Twilight of American Sanity in the Age of Trump. But what Barr said was, and uh, let's just play the clip. He, he will always put his own interests and gratifying his own ego ahead of everything else, including the country's interests. There's no question about it. This is a perfect example of that. He's like, you know, he's like a nine-year-old, a defiant nine-year-old kid who's always pushing the glass toward the edge of the table, defying his parents to stop him from doing it. It's a means of self-assertion and exerting his dominance over other people. And he's, he's a very petty individual who will always put his interests ahead of the country's, his personal gratification of his, you know, of his ego but our country our country can't you know can't be a therapy session for you know a troubled man like this so what did you make of Barr's statement on face the nation last week ben well first of all as uh, the father of a of a five almost six year old uh and a two almost three year old i'll say that yeah they do that where they kind of like push the glass and and try to to you know see see the limits but they also do listen sometimes and they do stop and they uh, apologize and they, uh, you know, I feel like are working to become actual functioning human beings in society that eventually you grow into. So I don't know if the, if it's, if it's perfect because Trump is not changing, right? He is not going to learn lessons at this point. He is, he is who he is. People who think that he's suddenly going to pivot, uh, or become more presidential or, 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 uh, you know, go into a box they want him to go in. Those people are delusional, right? I mean, it's it's interesting for Bill Barr to say this now, um, but I don't know how he didn't see that before. I mean, Trump has shown who he's who he is for a very very long time, and for people to work for him and claim that they thought that maybe he could be changed or maybe they they could help uh, put up guardrails, it's just it feels a little uh, a little phony to me to hear people talk about it now like they're just realizing this for the first time. But maybe that's just me. Well, I've interviewed a few times Miles Taylor, who was responsible for the anonymous op-ed in the New York Times early in the Trump administration, which obviously upset Trump royally. But he was in, in the Oval Office a number of times as the chief of staff of, of the head of the Department of Homeland Security. And I asked him, the very question that you just raised, uh, Ben, is why didn't these people speak out? And why aren't they speaking out now? And there's a whole bunch of them that, that could go forward and tell the American people about what this man is actually like and how he governed. I mean, some of the stories that Miles told me were just hair-raising, telling the chief of staff, General Kelly, that he wanted the Marines to shoot pregnant Mexican women in the legs, and then Trump getting into absolutely sadistic detail about wanting to have razor-sharp spikes on the top of the wall so the Mexicans would cut their hand. I mean, these are just some of the anecdotes. So what is it about Washington where they get the privilege of being close to power, but they don't really seem to have the social responsibility or sense of social responsibility to explain to the American people who they've elected and how dangerous and unqualified this man is and was? I think there's just so many answers to that question. I mean, one is it's a collective action issue, right, where if one person speaks out, you know, what happens, right? It's just, oh, you're a person who spoke out and people say, oh, great, you told me something I already sort of knew about Trump. And now you're unemployable in Washington. Uh, you kind of need everybody to jump. And it's very difficult to get everybody to jump at the same time. I think that's part of it. Uh, there's, a, you know, people are, are cowardly often when their own own job security is on the line, sometimes with good reason, right? Sometimes you got families to feed, blah, blah, blah. Like, 
you know, I don't want to, to judge too hard, but like um, people put their own interest above the country's plenty of times because, you know, they can only see five feet in front of themselves sometimes. Uh, also, I just think that like what's left to learn about Donald Trump? Maybe this is maybe, maybe I'm 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 wrong on this, but it seems like we all know everything there is to know and people are still deciding that they'll support him anyway. Um, like you said, people are raising their hands that they'd still vote for him, even if he was running from jail. Uh, Miles Taylor had, had a book come out. He's got another coming out. He's done all these interviews. I'm sure he, he has shed some light on Trump, but it's shedding light that people all have kind of decided they're either okay with or they hate. I don't, I can't imagine how many people are out there who, who don't have a pretty good picture of who the man is at this point. So you, just in closing, uh, you wrote the book in 2022. Did you realize then, Ben, that Marxists and communists have taken over the U.S. government under Joe Biden? <laughs> did I realize then that had happened? Uh, no, I did not realize, <laughs> and I'm I'm still searching for, for all of them if uh, if they're there. Well, they're under the bed probably. <laughs> <laughs> I'll check. Well, Ben, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a blast. And again, I've been speaking with Ben Terrace, who is a writer at the Washington Post style section with a focus on national politics. He's the author of, an, of the new book just out, The Big Break, The Gamblers, Party Animals and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.